Well, eating's cheating, so fresh air as usual. Eating's cheating? Yeah. God, I'm doing fasting, except for this morning, because the train was so miserable. It was two and a half hours. Yeah. No, no, you just you just don't eat for uh, sixteen hours of the day. That's called sleeping. So, uh, welcome back to the studio, dear listener. We've just returned from a week in New York City. Now, uh, this is our second trip to that retail mecca. And last time, of course, we met with Tula, Showfields and Eaton Shirts, which was our last episode. So this time, we were there for NRF, the National Retail Federation, and their big show. Uh, and for once, uh, Big Show isn't really an overstatement. Uh, this annual fixture draws about 40,000 retailers each January uh, to check out a 1,000 exhibitors and hundreds and hundreds of speakers. And with so much retail talent in town, it's no surprise that uh, a busy schedule of activities has, has grown around the event, uh, a sort of vibrant off-Broadway performance, if you like. So this year, we joined in with all of the extracurricular activity and arranged a store tour. Now, um, I asked via LinkedIn for suggestions, and it was so heartening, uh, the number of people who you know, gave her their time and suggestions. And we whittled the suggestions down to 108 stores, which we visited uh, last year. And then out of those, picked eight that were a combination of inspiring, different, and also proximate to each other, uh, and wandered around them. So Jamie and I visited uh, Showfields, which was talking about the future of the department store, Amazon Four Star, Atelier Beauté Chanel, which was incredible, the Gucci flagship, also incredible, The Real Real, Camp, probably my favourite, and Neighbourhood Goods, also reinventing the uh, department store. So, Jamie, welcome. Welcome to the studio. Thank you for uh, having me. What were your thoughts on NRF, first of all, and then we'll get on to the store tour? Well, NRF, I've been fortunate to visit a few times, and in many ways, every single time you go there, it's very formulaic. You do the similar kinds of things, but within all that bigness, as you mentioned before, and all that uh, stuff that you've probably seen before, there's an awful lot of new stuff. And I think the buzzword for me this time, because everyone likes a buzzword, well, then, buzz probably going to say several words and rather than buzzword, but never mind, um, is in-store analytics or bringing data or the learnings from data out from stores to people who want mm. to make decisions based on that data. Yeah. Now, I know that's not particularly new and we've been counting footfall and all that sort of stuff, but it seems like we've gone up a notch in terms of how scientific and detailed we're getting so that yes. we're starting to get some of the sort of web metrics, really are starting to get some yeah. of the web metrics that we've been talking about for a while. It's finally coming. So I saw some really interesting things there. So if you were to blend them together with what you're getting in other channels, like online, then you're starting to get a fuller picture in that whole sort of single customer view, so on and so forth, yes. starts to really flesh out. Which I, so I thought it was quite interesting. I'd agree with that. And I think uh, I was also intrigued to see the first time uh, I'd witnessed that the US market paying attention to privacy and GDPR. So one of the install analytics companies doesn't do anything identifiable, it just gives you a heat signature and then tracks you around as if it's a uh, you know, missile lock-on. So it knows that you and I are different, but it doesn't know who we are. So you have anonymous tracking, you have eye gaze, you have product tracking. You know, the whole lot is really coming together in 
quite an insightful mass of data. Well, exactly. And I think some of the things that you thought perhaps weren't possible in the West as opposed to in China where it's a bit more normal, yeah. you know, there's facial recognition and all that sort of stuff. I think we're somehow starting to use that and get around some of the issues and challenges of privacy that mm. we have experienced before. And so we're beginning to catch up on that because there's no doubt that it can be helpful. But clearly, all yeah. of us want to protect our privacy and we want to make sure that we're able to do what we want to do without being tracked too much. Yeah, I'll protect it or make sure I get a good voucher. Well, exactly. I'll do it for 20% off. <laughs> Um, it has been said. Now, I'd agree with you that the in-store bit uh, is particularly strong. I thought this year was uh, very much a year of consolidation. So they seem to do this every couple of years where it's as if there's nothing new. It's just it's all started working a lot better and has gone from promise and prototype to deployable and commercial. So I think my main takeaway was that you know, all the people I visited just had product that was shipping now with case studies and it seemed to be delivering ROI. It was just a year of everything working for me. Well, I mean, I'm, I don't want to labour the points on in-store analytics, but we we saw it, we heard it a lot. As you said, it felt like it was a buzzword and a lot of people were talking about it. But then you go to some of the stores that we saw on the store tour and they're actually using it and they're getting data and they're telling you know, in the case of some of the department store type businesses mm. that we saw, they're telling the brands that they sell what's going on, which is justifying the fees that they're charging. So, And uh, that's a great segue because um, Neighbourhood Goods is the one that stood out for me on that. I mean, uh, we were lucky that we had a really nice session with uh, Matt, the founder and CEO of Neighbourhood Goods. And one of the things that he was saying that totally surprised me was he was going down the roof saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we're a retail platform. And I'm thinking, yeah, I've heard that before. And then he just pointed to the walls <laughs> where you could see tracking devices. And they were all, you're literally hidden. But he's offering startup brands and digital native brands the kind of real-world retail tracking that they've never had access to before, even though they've had online tracking. And so this idea of a platform to understand customer behaviour all of a sudden made a lot more sense. Absolutely. And when it starts to justify, as I said, the fees that they're charging, everyone starts to become a lot more happy in the relationship because you know that if it doesn't work out, you can leave based on real decisions rather than, you know, gut. And there's still a role, of course, for gut and anything. But, you know, you start getting the real data and it tells you, yes, it's working for you. No, it's not. And you can make decisions accordingly, yeah. which I think strengthens probably the relationship between him, his business and the companies he works with. And I mean, it helps him find the right partners and the right partners will make his business work. Yeah, absolutely. Now, who else on our store tour have you been talking about afterwards? So, you know, which, which one made a, an impression on you? Well, I don't want to steal any of your thundering because I think we probably agree on this one, but we met a bunch of staff generally across the stores who were fantastic. Special mention for Amy from Gucci and Worcester Street. Yes. Uh, who was just phenomenal as a curator, she was called. She was incredible. So to put this in context, all of the staff we met throughout our store tours, you know, they are, I think, the pinnacle of retail staff anyway. And then you head downtown to the flagship, so you get the creme de la creme. But some stood out... What's above the creme? It's the something. <laughs> it's the know. super creamy creme on the creme. With the cherry on uh, Yeah, the cherry on the creme. And uh, Amy, who's in the Gucci flagship, she took a group of us, talked us through everything from uh, who made the tiles uh, on the walls, the history of the building, uh, to insight on her customer and selling approach. It really was quite inspiring for the future of retail. It was, absolutely. But you wonder, I mean, just playing sort of devil's advocate, you wonder, you know, with this sort of race to get the best talent, 
Gucci's a well-known brand at big scale. Um, it can probably afford it and do it and, and all that sort of stuff. It is because Amy's there and doing a great job. But where does that leave everyone else? How, how are they going to uh, compete and get the best talent, like all businesses, I suppose? Yeah. But it's particularly difficult when perhaps the, the the high street, so to speak, not necessarily the luxury part of the high street, but the high street is not doing so well. You know, how do you afford to get those people into your business, mm. keep them But I think, um, you know, the other side is how can you afford not to have them. Well, I mean, I, you know, Amy made a very interesting comment because uh, we asked about the customer and she said, look, she said, nobody who walks into this store doesn't know Gucci and doesn't know how to use a web browser. So they could already have bought everything they want. So the fact they come in time and again shows that there's an experience they're getting that sustains their relationship with the brand. And I think that's really where, you know, throughout all the retailers we looked at, the staff in all cases were just above and beyond. You know, they have to be business people, brand people, performers, stand-up comedians, you know, mobilizers and motivators of staff. It really is the place, I think, uh, that, you know, if your kids said, oh, I want to go into retail, Dad, you'd send them to New York to say, that's the way to do it. Yeah, I think you, you'd mentioned that camp was your probably your favourite, but I mean the entrance to that, if you're a, a five year old, is pretty special, isn't it? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to spoil any uh, surprises. You could Google this and see the videos online, but camp looks like just a normal store. And if you're mulling around as a group of adults, it stays a normal store until a child comes along when one of the staff will engage them and say, you know, do you believe in magic? And as they chat to the child, they just push the wall away, which disappears in a cloud of smoke leading uh, to an area that's maybe five times bigger, full of toys with five performances a day, massive amounts of interaction. And by interaction, I don't mean, you know, kind of lightweight stage stuff. I mean, rip the box open, play with the toys, make a mess. Fantastic. Changes, I think, six, seven times a year. For me, that was the one that combined a real understanding of the customer and the product segment with a real investment in an actual experience that wasn't just trivial or, you know, just a little bit of lipstick on a pig. This really was, you know, the real deal. Yeah, it was It was quite incredible. And, you know, I don't know what the economics of all that were, but it was a fantastic experience. It didn't look like it would cost the earth. It was a more imagination being executed yes. rather than expensive stuff that they brought in to make it happen yeah. you know people were talking but we i think we saw in various stores you know actors are being employed a lot more to just to make that thing i mean yes they're going to cost a little bit more and all that sort of thing but you know it's not going to break the bank necessarily exactly. if they get it right and uh, the ceo camp uh, i bumped into him at uh, an event the day before he was saying that they'd launched four new stores in three weeks wow so something's working and i think you know, there's uh, you know as he said that uh, they focus on places that have got children and parents. So it's kind of, that's the market. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, listen, uh, we have full details of the store tour. Uh, I'll put the link in the programme notes so that people can see that. And a big thanks as well to Vinay and the team at Salesforce that did all the logistics and planning and helped us get this uh, off the ground. But it uh, it really was great. So you can join us digitally. Anyway, that's enough about our thoughts for now. We were lucky during the tour to be joined by Laura Padfield. Uh, she's the Head of Strategy and Business Development for International at Marks & Spencer. So we asked Laura to join us in the podcast studio to talk about her impressions and also her work on international strategy and M&S. So let's jump back through time and space and uh, hear from her now. 
Laura Panfield from M&S. Welcome. Hello. Uh, tell our listener a bit about your role and we'll come back then to what you're doing here. So I um, work for M&S International, so I focus solely on the international part of the business and have been for about five years. Um, and I look after, I have the privilege of looking after strategy and business development for, for international. Strategy and business development. Yes. So strategy is normally without a lot of thinking. Mm. Business development, hard-nosed, get the sales in. Is that what those things mean for international? I'm not sure that's what it means. So definitely strategy, the hard-nosed thinking. Definitely. And my team would love that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let the record show. Yeah, yes. the team would love that. Um, business development, probably I would kind of call that more on the execution of some of that strategy. So if I think about the journey um, that M&S International have been on over the last five years, we've been, in, we've been on an incredible, incredible journey. So for those that don't know anything about um, M&S International, maybe five years ago, we were a little bit of a, a tragedy or a little bit of a burning platform in M&S. Um, in that we had quite a few businesses that were not profitable. We couldn't see a route to scale those businesses. We couldn't see um, the customer having a strong brand resonance in those markets. And so we knew that wasn't sustainable. Equally, I would say our business was quite complicated. So we have got a mixture of equity models. So we've got some owned businesses, some franchise businesses, mm. some JV businesses. Um, equally, we had different uh, buying models. So some markets bought centrally, other markets bought in country, and all of that made it quite complicated. Right. Um, and so we went on a little bit of a stabilization journey where we kind of knew we had burning platforms. And so uh, in 2016, we announced 10 market closures. We closed 55 stores. We sold some of our own businesses over to our franchises just to clean but things keeping up. keeping the brand. Absolutely right. keeping the brand. So we are M&S brand around the world. We don't call ourselves anything else. We were kind of doing a clean-up job and making it a sustainable, profitable business. Mm. Um, and I would say we have successfully done that. So that sounds like you arrive, you see a problem, I'll tidy the problem. Yeah. But that's not the same as then having a strategy which well, says... Well, so here we go, here we go. Why? So let's do the, let's do the hard nose out, do yeah. the thinking. So you've stabilised it, yeah. so that's good. Gives you time to think. What is the purpose of M&S being in market other than in Blighty and Her Majesty's loyal subjects? What's the purpose? Well, it's amazing um, the brand resonance we have in some of our strong markets. So if you think about, we have got um, one of our most profitable and growing businesses in India. And the brand resonance there, they really buy into the British heritage. Mm -hmm. They really buy into the authenticity of the brand, the trust, um, I think where some of the Indian customers are moving, are buying more into westernization, actually, the M&S brand is an okay brand to buy. It's okay. It's not considered cheap. It's not considered tacky. It's considered to have um, integrity. And that's what they're buying into. And we know that is the core essence of M&S. If you think why M&S started, it was to commoditize luxury. And that's what we want to do. We, want, we know that we've got fantastic product. That's kind of M&S's unique offering. And we know that there are customers out there that want to buy into that product, whether that be clothing and home or food. And so that's what we want to take to market. We want to, be, we want to take that luxury and enable other 
consumers to buy into it. So, so in India, do you do all those three categories? We don't do food. We don't do food. We do clothing and home. But you do that in, in Hong Kong, for example. Yeah, so some markets we do have um, it, this, the complexity of an international business, imports, regulatory, make food quite complicated, supply chain equally makes food quite complicated. Um, and India, we haven't cracked it in terms of getting food in. However, Hong Kong, we um, do have a thriving food business where we sell ambient, but we also sell chilled food. Um, but that chilled food is flown into the market. Oh, really? Um, yeah. But that market can pay for it. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, there's a customer there. So I, I want to cover the whole local, global thing in a second. But just thinking back to something you said uh, about the Britishness and the values... There is, I think, a challenge, especially in a country and economy that's being fueled by the growth of young people, is that if they look at something and think, oh, that's my grandmother's brand, or that's what I would have aspired to if I'd been alive in the 1950s, we're talking about people who have a different perception of Britain based on you know, how the world is now. So when you're looking at that Britishness, what, what are the values that do translate, and how do those become realised? There's two things. One is, in the UK, we are trying to move the brand to be slightly younger, and perception could be that we can be a bit mumsy, old mumsy, um, and we're trying to move the brand to a more growing family market, so it's kind of more relevant for Mm. more um, touch points in your family life so that's one aspect the other aspect is actually internationally our customer does tend to be slightly younger and the brand is considered to be more fashionable than it is in the UK Mm. so quite often what they're buying into is a premium fashionable quality item and let's link maybe the values bit also with air freighting food into uh, Hong Kong you know the, the values that I'd sort of imbibed uh, as I'd grown up with things about your know, quality of materials, workmanship, treating people fairly, you know, the sort of the nice values uh, you talk about. Are those the values that people are responding to internationally? Uh, and then how does that link with things that you're saying, oh, it should be made locally rather than British made? How do you balance that, um, those aspects of heritage and values? So it is a complete balancing act. So there, there is one aspect of just picking up on a flying product into Hong Kong. We know that's not sustainable in current climate world. We know that we have to find an alternative solution. But there is an element of you need scale. In, so we know in the UK, one of the things that um, people trust us because we have got a top-notch supply chain. We know it's completely closed. We can trace every single ingredient. We know where it comes from, where it's sourced. And that's something that people buy into and are willing to pay for. Our customers equally abroad, those that know us from the UK expect that as well. Mm. And so while some of these markets are developing, while we're trying to establish those supply chains, you need slightly more scale than what we have. And so that will come in time. So we know that as we grow, that's something that we can Mm. 
we can work through. What was the second part of your question? Uh, who cares now? Who cares? Who cares Brilliant. Now? Who cares? Uh, at some point, <laughs> I might replay this. Oh, look, I know, I know what you were talking about. Local relevance. This is why you're yeah. in strategy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that, it's that ability to hold more than one thing in your okay. brain. <laughs> okay, right. Let me, let me talk about local relevance. because that, that's <laughs> Before re- we forget. That's really, it is, um, again, that's a fascinating journey that we've been on. So I would say, and this is speaking really honestly, I would say five years ago, we very much felt we were a UK business with an international presence and we were taking the UK catalogue and we were reproducing it and selling it around the world because we knew our business was in trouble, we knew it wasn't profitable enough and actually we weren't a big enough share of the profit of PLC MS to be able to ask for anything more. Since we've gone on that stabilisation journey and kind of, you know, restoring the basics, we are actually now about 20% of PLC profit no yeah yeah and so we are we've kind of got a bit of a stronger voice and internationally we've got our confidence back and so one we're able to ask more of the UK in terms of this is what we need for our markets so that's one aspect two we've kind of gone from feeling we're a UK business with an international presence to we're an international business and actually Mm. our customers are really important and we know that let me take India again because I do know this one where you start in a tier one city and they understand the brands more, you then move to a tier two or a three city, which is much smaller, not as developed as the tier one cities. Their understanding of that westernization isn't quite where it needs to be. We do things like we do locally supply product and we slightly tailor um, the product. So, as an, so men's shirts in India, nobody wears a jacket. So all of the men's shirts in India have a pocket on because that's where they put their mobile phone or their cigarette packet or their pen or, you know, whatever it is. In the UK, not all men's shirts have a pocket. So therefore, we have to localise that catalogue to put the pocket on. Oh, equally, I love that example. Equally, you take linen in India. Everybody loves linen, beautiful quality, beautiful fabric to wear in those warmer kind of environments. The colour palette in the UK is, you know, very far and ball to a certain degree <laughs> and kind of quite tame. Um, in India, they love bold print and they love bright colour all year round. So we would take the fit and the design of the linen UK shirt and we would locally supply it in India in a brighter, funner print. And actually, that's what the Indian lady wants to buy into. In the tier two cities, we know that they won't go straight from their traditional dress into um, skirts and shirts. So actually, we sell more jeggings with tunics. And so we we are locally... So it is local. We are becoming yeah. kind of... As we grow in confidence, we're becoming more locally relevant because we know that's what we need to do to scale. Is there, is there some of the is some of those ideas? Are they coming back to yeah. Blighty, as it were, and working yeah. as a result yeah. of them oh, working there? Yeah, much to the annoyance of the UK sometimes. <laughs> in in the Middle East, we we will curate a range that's called a modest range because we know that the women in Kuwait want in in the Middle East want to have longer sleeves, longer lengths. And that would might be the first bite when you walk into a store and it's curated in that way. And then why aren't we doing that in some of our cities in the UK where actually there's a high Muslim population mm. and actually they might buy into the catalogue yeah. being curated in that way. There's, there's, there's definitely learnings that you can get both ways. You can see that really happening. If you do nail the food thing, for example, yeah. at, in markets where you're not today because of the reasons mm. you said already... That would probably come back to this country, or to, to the UK, I should say, sitting in New York. <laughs> anyway, you know what I mean? Um, it probably would come back very well because we, you know, we love as a nation, we tend to love that kind of influence of food and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, exciting. And um, 
In practical terms, then, are you no longer in a little dingy office with no windows? Have you been brought into the mothership as a full partner in discussions and development now that you're profitable and confident? Or are you, you know, how, do, how do you work with head office? We were never in the basement. We were never in the basement. You know, we always had windows. We could see out. Yeah. <laughs> Luxury. <laughs> but we are all in one uh, building in Paddington, um, the whole business together. Um, we are working more in conjunction with the UK. You know, we have buying fairs where our partners, our franchise partners would come over to. And the UK product uh, categories support us by showcasing their product because they understand their product. They know why they've put this product together. They know where mm. the ranges are going and where the style's going. And so they will come and sell because effectively that event that we're doing is, you know, international have some of the biggest customers in PLC being the franchise partner. Yes, of course. And so actually the UK has a massive opportunity yeah. to sell into that franchise partner, get the volume to then be able to negotiate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're, we're definitely part of PLC. Excellent. Now, uh, mm. if we have name dropped enough, I'm yeah. just going to say one more time, <laughs> where are we? Oh. <laughs> I can't buy this so, again. So we're here um, at NRF yeah. and uh, it's not small. No. Um, I think it's about 40,000 people I haven't counted, but I, I don't sense any exaggeration. Uh, Three floors, 800 exhibitors, big old place. So, with your hard-nosed, hard-thinking, strategic hat on, uh, has anything tickled your fancy? Have you seen anything that you thought, I'm taking that back to ponder more? Most definitely. Some of the conversations that you have here, hearing what other retailers are doing globally and facing into some of the same problems that the UK are facing, even though we in the UK consider ourselves quite a mature mm. retail market. Um, I think there is a real um, voice at the moment around service in stores and what is the role of the store in the future in conjunction with online mm. and how the two need to work together yeah. more. And yeah. if someone hadn't told you that this is supposed to be retail plus e-commerce, you could walk around and think this was point of sale plus AI mm. event, mm. couldn't you? Yes, absolutely. I mean, all the things to do with, on, behind... Yeah shelves and data and cameras and robots it's uh, it is quite you know, quite a theme coming out there is there's definitely a theme but i think there is equally something around the connection with the customer mm. you're, you're not doing all of those things for technology's sake you're doing them because actually it's making the customer's journey frictionless you're doing it because mm. you're enhancing the, your understanding of the customer so that ultimately you can upsell yes. if that's what you want to do um, and i think i think you're absolutely right about two years ago they were showing a lot of robots here. Yeah. And the patter went, da-da-da, this robot will be able to do X, Y, and Z. And everyone went, wow, it's a robot. Uh, last year, they were showing robots, but the narrative has changed. Instead of saying the robot's going to cut staff, it was, no, 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 staff are so precious. Yeah. The robot will do all the rubbish in the admin so that your lovely, amazing staff that you can barely manage to recruit yeah. is so competitive, can you know, do higher level things. And I think when, when you're in America, I always think it's quite difficult anyway because you know in America services, service, kind yes. of everybody is important. But it's kind of quite significant that what that technology is enabling your service people to do is have the information to know that it's customer X coming into the store and actually they're a high value customer or they always return things or they always yeah. buy multiple products when they buy online and actually 
They need to be near a fitting room because you want to get them to try on, to return straight away, to just make the whole experience yeah. so much better. And it's about not using the, um, the technology for gimmick, but using it to enhance the customer experience. Talking to somebody from Adidas, and he, he was talking about um, kind of some of the flagship stores and how ultimately they don't pay for themselves in any way, shape or form, but you're doing it to showcase the best. But what you then have to work out is how you scale that in, your, in the rest of your yes, store estate. Yeah. What aspects are you taking? Yeah. Um, you have to do the flagships if you're a big brand because yeah. you have to showcase. But that's not every store because no, that's no. not what but every I think customer increasing, is wanting. Increasing the, the, the level of the common denominator is important. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, in the US, it's very difficult now to find staff. So you can't afford to lose them once you train no. them. And I think we'll find in the UK as well, I mean, unemployment's at historic low levels. Yeah. People just want more. They don't want to sit yeah. in it's, the it's store People's and be expectations have exactly. gone up because they can get everything online and all that information. Then you go into yeah. a store where actually you want the person that you speak to to be an expert on the product. Yeah. But you're competing against all that information that they've got online, yeah. and but that's I, really tough. Yeah, I think this week, though, one of the, you know, you were asking about two years ago, or saying it was two weeks, years ago it was this, and last year it was this. This year, I think it's in-store analytics. I don't know if you've yeah. picked that up, but there's a lot of talk about let's harness some of the data that you would ordinarily get online really easily yeah. to make exactly to your point about, you know, work out what's good and then make it work at scale kind of yeah. thing. I think that's, so yeah. you see that? Yeah, most definitely. The other thing is kind of, we were all in a store on whatever day this week it was, yeah. neighborhood goods. And actually what the technology that you saw was very, very little. It was the behind Couldn't the scenes technology. Exactly. And actually that was, I thought that was amazingly refreshing that what they were trying to do was trying to be a really traditional retailer, yeah. create beautiful product that customers want in. There was a real humbling about the, the guy that spoke in that he was like, stores can be intimidating places for our mm, customers and mm. actually you want to come in and you want to be treated how you personally want to be treated. So you have yes. to be recognized. Yeah. They have to be able to identify you to do that, which is frightening because none of us really want to lose that privacy in the UK. But ultimately, if you want to go and speak to a cashier, you need to be able to go and do that. If you want to be able to go and pick up your product that you've ordered online out of a, a locker box or whatever it is, you need to be able to do that. If you want to be sitting down at a table working and somebody bringing you your product, you need to be able to do that. You have to, we, there are so many needs out there that course, retailers yeah, are having no, to serve. I think you're making... absolutely right. You know, we were talking about um, some of the stores you visited. I think just to tie it back to you know, your earlier point about experience, uh, we visited the Gucci flagship mm -hmm. on um, Worcester. And again, you know, uh, it's not, not our normal store shopping it was a totally it's not where i hang store. out normally um <laughs> but amy the store manager who was absolutely mm. fantastic wasn't she um you know insightful knowledgeable you know emotionally intelligent she was absolutely uh, wearing fantastic. the brand that dress was wearing amazing, the wasn't brand it? but what she said um in the conversation after was very interesting she said look nobody who walks in this store doesn't know how to use the internet and their credit card. Yeah. So she said they've either already bought it or they're about to buy it or they could just buy several and have them delivered. Yeah. So uh, it's not about sales as an end. It's about really bringing the brand to life. And they're talking about the values of playfulness and so yeah. on. And I know we visited quite a few luxury stores, but the, the, the there was that sort of, you kind of wanted to giggle a bit when you went in because it was actually fun combination of product, environment, yeah. and then the ambiance they, they built. And uh, I think that's one of the takeaways I've had is if you want people to keep buying things they don't need, it has to be 
well, you, fun as well. But more than that, if you want them to come into the store to buy the things that they don't need, <laughs> you've got to give them an experience exactly. to do it. They've got to have a reason. What are yeah. they going to get? by going into the store rather than sitting yeah. on the sofa looking at a device. And then back to neighbourhood goods, one yeah. of the interesting things was the technology they were using was very you know, hidden. I, th I think what Matt, the CEO, was saying was it was about a platform, an analytics platform for yeah. physical retail. I'm, I yeah. may be misquoting, so apologies. I think that's good enough. Um, that's right. But we'll it, it was about giving the small brands, for the first time, real-time analytics on footfall, dwell time, yeah. interest, what people are looking at, what they were buying. And you realize that this is one of the things that platforms can offer back to yeah. small brands, manufacturers, direct consumers. You wouldn't have access to that data exactly. and how their customers are interacting with their brand, how long they're dwelling, mm. what they're picking up and putting down and yeah. all those decisions that go through when you make a purchase. And, and he, he was showing us you know, on some of the point of sale, the accessibility and the legibility of these analytics now is mm -hmm. so much better than you know, dashboards of 10, 15 years ago. What's also interesting as well, because cameras and, and recordings of people and stuff is all, you know, if you're in China, then it's, you know, no one really cares kind of thing. But there's obviously well, I mean, over the West, it's much more of a GDPR type yeah. you know, privacy issue. But they're managing to get around of it. Again, thinking about that innovation center, NRF, there are a couple of yeah. uh, businesses that are getting around that and making it totally opt-in. And I don't know how they do it, yeah. But, yeah. but they're doing it. And it's interesting because I never thought it would happen. There's that one called Door. Yes, D -O yeah. with exactly. Yeah. Funny little uh, circumflex yeah. R door of gold. Um, no. Where they 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 just do body heat. Yeah. So th there's no facial recognition. They just acquire you whether you're going in or out by your body heat, and then follow a hot blob around the face. <laughs> so I've got mean, a temperature. Speak blimey. for, speak <laughs> for, speak for yourself. Speak for myself. Exactly. Calpol all round. <laughs> yes, that's it. He came to the store. He took some calpol. He disappeared. <laughs> now, when uh, when you land back in Blighty, mm. uh, what's on your agenda for the rest of 2020? What was the fun thing that's the thing? I can't wait to get back to my desk because I'm doing X, Y, and Z. Where's M&S going next? Hang on, I'm so sorry to ask the question. Yeah, no, yeah, so yeah. Where's, that's, where's that's, that's the oh, fun that's the thing. Question. That's the fun thing. <laughs> we're that's asking what ourselves I, that's what I get to. Yeah. That's what I get to work out. Where, do, where are we going next? What are, where, where should we be that we're not? What are the channels that we should be in that we're not? How ultimately we have brilliant, brilliant products and we have customers, and how do we just get them together? So there's there's all of that exciting stuff. More specifically, because I know you want more specifics. Mm -hmm. um, that's always nice to have. <laughs> uh, we know we've got a lot more that we can do in India, and so that's a, a really big play for us. And so that's a fantastic, exciting opportunity. Excellent. Maybe we should do a, a Retail Craft Goes to India podcast. I think it's brilliant. You've gone big in India, haven't you? Or you are going even bigger. Yeah, no, so, so we are about... 80 odd stores now wow. in India and we have got plans to be in the hundreds I won't say what hundred but it's definitely more, more than, than one, one. <laughs> <laughs> more than 80 well on, on that um, share price moving bombshell of insight uh, Laura thanks so much for joining us Absolute pleasure. Uh, it's been a pleasure spending time with you and sharing your insight with us has been very revealing and great fun so good thank you very much thank you and, uh, enjoyed it enjoy 2020 well, what can I say? That was a great session with Laura. And, you know, throughout the time we spent with her, she was thought-provoking uh, and exciting to her. And that was, uh, that was great. Any uh, takeaways from your perspective? 
Well, I love the the way she described the businesses of international and the sort of UK-based business that we're all familiar with, walking around down the high street. You know, very similar, but also very different. And how actually, you know, they, they spent a lot of time getting it to the point where it is and it was working well. And in fact, some of those learnings are coming off the international side into the UK side. And that's, I guess, what a good business should be all about. And I think the other one is about the regional differences that they have to encounter and what work goes into making that uh, that happen and, and for the magic of M&S as a brand to be um, executed well. And I, I just think that they must be working nights and day. I don't know how they do it, but it's yeah. very impressive. I think you're global and local. For once, it's not a cliche. It's, no, it's quite, well. quite. Anyway, thanks again to Laura for that. So that's all from the studio today. Loads of links in the programme notes uh, about NRF, the store tour, uh, and anything else we've referenced. So um, check that out. And in our next episode, we have a few more interviews from New York City, where we met with Tiffany's and Alexander Wang. So we'll have that out, we hope, very shortly. But until then, thanks once more to Laura for guesting and the team at Salesforce who organised the tour. We wish you successful trading. Very good. good. Well done. Lovely. Great was, job. Was that okay? Fantastic. Yeah. Have, you, have, you, have you got all consonants? Have you nailed all consonants? Or is there a consonant to Incontinence. Break? No, not, <laughs> not incontinence. Are we, are we still, are, are we still are recording? Are you all incontinence? <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're all um, incontinence. God, that's incontinence. a personal question. <laughs> <laughs> Everness has got something for that. <laughs>